welcome back to the Historia Dramatica podcast. I'm your host, Will Connor. This is episode two of our mini-series on the life of Baron Roman von Ungern Sternberg. Before we begin, I'd just like to say that I've been absolutely overwhelmed and humbled by the amount of support that I've received from you guys over the last two weeks. Already, my expectations for this podcast have been surpassed by leaps and bounds, and I have you all to thank for that. So I'd like to sincerely thank you again once more for listening to the podcast. It means quite a lot to me. Now enough with the sentimental stuff, and on to the housekeeping. As you likely know already, the podcast is now up on both Apple Podcasts and Spotify, so if either of those are your preferred podcast listening platforms, that option is now available to you. Alternatively, you can continue to stream or download episodes from Podbean or use the RSS feed. It's up to you. Anyway, with all of that out of the way, on to the show. In the last episode, we were introduced to Baron Roman Fyodorovich von Ungern Sternberg, or simply just Ungern for short. Ungern was born in 1886. He was a member of the Baltic German nobility, a special class of ethnic German nobles who retained their own independent power base within the Russian Empire, and who made up a decent percentage of the Empire's officer corps. Ungern was a very ill-behaved child who displayed worrying signs of psychopathy very early on. He was expelled from two different schools by the age of 19, and he probably would have lived out the rest of his days in alcoholism and obscurity were it not for the outbreak of the Russo-Japanese War in 1905. Ungern's sense of patriotism was strong, and he enlisted in the Russian army at his first opportunity. By the time he got to the front lines, however, Japan had thoroughly defeated Russia and the war was all but over. Still, Ungern found that he took to army life, and so, upon his return, he enrolled in a military academy in St. Petersburg. The army really seemed to straighten him out, as his interests changed from killing small animals to reading books about theosophy and Eastern religion. He graduated from the academy and became a full-fledged officer sometime between 1909 and 1910. Because of his fascination with the East, he elected to take up a position with a Cossack regiment stationed in Siberia. He unfortunately found life out there to be extremely dull. He took to heavy drinking to pass the time, which led him to get into fights with fellow officers. He was expelled from two different regiments for this sort of behavior. In 1913, Ungern decided to go his own way. He resigned his position and ventured off to Mongolia, where he'd heard tale of a war of independence between the Mongols and their former overlords, the Chinese. Once again, Ungern arrived there to find that the action was mostly over already, and so disappointedly, he slunk back to his home in Estonia. And that brings our narrative right to the first half of 1914. Roman von Ungern Sternberg found himself in much the same position as he did back in 1905. He was down pretty bad, no prospects, and coming to terms with the fact that maybe military life just wasn't for him at all. Then, just as happened in 1905, war broke out again. The basic outline of the First World War should be familiar to anyone who has taken a high school history class. The assassination of Austrian Archduke Franz Ferdinand by a Serbian nationalist sparked a geopolitical crisis that was years in the making. Austria declared war on Serbia, prompting Russia to mobilize against Austria-Hungary, prompting Germany to declare war against Russia and their ally France, prompting Britain to declare war against Germany, and so on and so forth. When Ungern first heard the news that Russia was at war, he wasted no time rejoining the army, opting to join a Cossack regiment based out of eastern Ukraine rather than waiting to be transferred back to Siberia. In the opening months of the war, his new regiment participated in the disastrous invasion of East Prussia. 
of the 800,000 Russian soldiers who marched into German territory in August 1914, only 500,000 returned. The decisive German victory came at the Battle of Tannenberg, where, 500 years prior, the Polish and Lithuanians had defeated Ungern's crusader ancestors. The Russian Second Army was practically annihilated. Among the dead were the general of the Second Army, Alexander Samsonov, who committed suicide out of humiliation, and Ungern's cousin, Friedrich von Ungern-Sternberg, who died attempting to charge a German machine gun emplacement. That brings us to an essential point. The warfare of the First World War was radically different from the last major wars that had been fought in Europe. Now, the popular image of the Great War is one of trench warfare. Young men blindly throwing themselves at enemy fortifications and being mowed down by machine guns and so on and so forth. Now, this is true as it pertains to the Western Front, but the action in the East took on a different character. The sheer length of the border between the warring powers meant that a network of trenches spanning the entire front, as was the case in the West, was simply impractical. The action on the Eastern Front was similar to the wars that Europeans had been used to. Vast offensives and counteroffensives, large battles engaging several thousand men at once. Now this is not to say that the new technology the war was known for, machine guns, barbed wires, and whatnot, were nowhere to be seen. In fact, they were all too present, and they made life absolute hell for cavalrymen like Ungern. Following his escape from the slaughter at Tannenberg, Ungern left his regiment and joined the 1st Nerchinsky Regiment of the Transbaikal Cossacks. By 1917, the 1st Nerchinsky Cavalry Regiment reported a casualty rate of 170% among enlisted men and 200% among officers, that meaning that all of the men who composed the original unit, as well as most of their replacements, had been killed, wounded, or captured. These high rates were more or less standard across all cavalry divisions of the Russian army. Half of the cavalrymen deployed by the Russian army in 1914 were dead within the year. Russian High Command made note of the ineffectiveness of cavalry tactics in modern war, and, given the high cost of cavalry maintenance, plans were made to phase these units out. Most cavalrymen who remained at the front were relegated to auxiliary duties, such as reconnaissance missions. But Ungern's daring nature and love of combat meant that he wouldn't be content with this. As his commanding officer, Baron Pyotr Wrangel, put it so succinctly, war was his element. He was possessed of the suicidal bravery that was needed to charge a horse towards enemy machine guns capable of firing off 500-plus rounds a minute. During the war, Ungern led several daring raids behind enemy lines, descending on enemy positions, killing as many as possible, and running off before they even knew what hit them. He participated in frontline combat on foot as well. Over the course of the war, he was wounded five separate times, although none of these injuries were serious enough to take him away from the front for longer than a month. For these actions, he earned several decorations, including Russia's highest military honor, the Order of St. George, which he wore proudly on his chest for the rest of his life, basically. In what is at this point a recurring theme, Ungern's love of alcohol and combative nature ran him afoul of the law once again. On the 22nd of October, 1916, Ungern was on leave in the Ukrainian town of Chernivisti. Having spent the day drinking, Ungern barged into a local hotel and demanded to be given a room, insisting that he was entitled to one because he was a military officer. When the receptionist informed him that he needed a written statement from his immediate superior, Ungern lost his temper and threw a ceramic vase at him. He missed and shattered it against the wall. He then made his way to his commanding officer's quarters to take the issue up with him, but he wasn't there, and now one of the aides-de-camp was left to face Ungern's wrath. 
When the aide failed to resolve the issue in a time frame acceptable to Ungern, he again lost his temper and tried to assault him with his cavalry saber. The aide-de-camp ran off to find the police, and shortly thereafter, they entered the building to find Ungern fast asleep in the armchair. He was promptly arrested and brought before a military tribunal, where he was sentenced to two months in prison. While Ungern was serving his sentence, some rather important political developments were unfolding. The underlying tensions that were the cause of the 1905 revolution had never been truly resolved. Now the hardships of the First World War had once again brought the people's grievances to the fore. Soldiers were dying at a horrific rate, only for Russia to be dealt defeat after defeat by the Central Powers. The economy was tanking. Soldiers on the front lines had trouble even getting the most basic of supplies. Nearly all of Russia's major cities were experiencing food shortages. Whether justly or unjustly, many placed the blame on the incompetent administration of Tsar Nicholas II. In February 1917, a series of strikes and demonstrations broke out in the capital city of St. Petersburg, renamed Petrograd to avoid association with Germany. Initially, the mobs only demanded bread, the cost of which had skyrocketed due to those aforementioned food shortages. As the protests carried on for days on end, however, their demands became more extreme. An end to the war, democratic government, and the abolition of the monarchy. Soldiers were called in to suppress the riots by violent force if necessary. But this backfired. Many of the soldiers merely stood idly by, and several even actually joined the protesters. By the third week of protests, Tsar Nicholas realized the gravity of the situation, and on March 16th, Tsar Nicholas II formally abdicated the throne. With no provisions made for succession, effective control of Russia fell to a liberal provisional government, which would remain in power until elections could be held for a constituent assembly. To the largely conservative Russian officer corps, these events came as quite a shock, but they could live with it for the time being. Many were confident that once the war was over and the political situation had stabilized, the monarchy would be restored. More moderate elements of the officer corps thought that perhaps a republic might not be that bad for them after all, so long as the overall hierarchy of society remained intact. And so the officers of the Russian army, for the most part, threw in their lot with the provisional government. At the end of the day, they did have a war to fight. But the provisional government and the republic, they were not destined to last. After being released from prison, Ungern was transferred to the Caucasian Front. When the Ottoman Empire entered the war on the side of the Central Powers in late 1914, fighting between the Ottoman Empire and the Russian Empire began in the Russo-Ottoman borderlands in the Caucasus. However, it was not long before the conflict spilled over into the neighboring country of Persia, which remained officially neutral. The action of the Persian campaign was centered in the northwest of the country. Native to this region was a sizable minority population of Assyrians. The Assyrians, being mostly Christian, were suspected by Ottoman authorities of providing assistance to the Russian army, and so they were targeted for forcible deportations, mass killings, and so on. Between 150,000 and 300,000 Assyrians were killed in what has since been termed the Assyrian Genocide. But Ungern, ever the opportunist, believed he could use this tragedy to his advantage. He set about organizing a military unit comprised entirely of ethnic Assyrians, harnessing their outrage at Ottoman atrocities and channeling them towards a more practical end. He was able to recruit a couple hundred men, and he won a few minor victories against Ottoman forces, but... Ultimately, the scheme of Ungern's failed to gain the traction he hoped it would. It did, however, plant a seed in the mind of his new friend and compatriot, Captain Grigory Semyonov. 
Semyonov was a native of the Transbaikal, born in 1890 in a small village that no longer appears to exist. He was of half-Russian and half-Buryat, read, native Siberian, descent. He's described as being, quote, of medium height, with square broad shoulders and an enormous head, the size of which is enhanced by his flat Mongol face, from which gleam two brilliant eyes that rather belong to an animal than a man. The pose of the man is at once suspicious, alert, and determined, like a tiger ready to spring. End quote. He attended a military academy in the city of Orenburg, and he became an officer of the Transbaikal Cossacks. Most officers, even the ones commanding Cossack divisions, were European noblemen like Ungern. It was uncommon for an actual Cossack to attain such a position, and almost unheard of for someone with Asian ancestry. Much like Ungern, Semyonov had ventured off to Mongolia in the early 1910s, but his search for fame and fortune proved to be far more fruitful. On a few occasions, he managed to rescue ranking Chinese officials from Mongol lynch mobs, and he received rather generous gifts from them as a reward. Thanks to actions such as these, and his proficiency in the Mongolian language, he was able to befriend the Bogd Khan, the leader of independent Mongolia, who offered him a position in the Mongol army. Before he could assume this position, though, the First World War broke out. He returned to Russia to rejoin the army, and demonstrated a great deal of courage in frontline actions, earning the Order of St. George twice. He had a rather lax policy regarding spoils of war, turning a blind eye to looting and occasionally engaging in looting of his own, which he often shared with his men. This made him very popular with the rank-and-file soldiers serving under him, but his Asian heritage and disregard for military decorum made him an outcast among his fellow officers. He met Ungern while they were both in Persia, and the two of them clicked rather well together. Surviving correspondence between the two men shows that they called each other by informal pronouns, and even used nicknames with each other. Ungern and Semyonov did have much in common. Both were eccentric cavalry officers, considered outsiders by their colleagues, so it is not surprising that the two became close. Moreover, the two bonded over their shared conviction that Russia's salvation could be achieved utilizing the military power of the East. Semyonov was convinced he could replicate Ungern's Assyrian legion scheme with the Buryat people of his own native Transbaikal. The provisional government gave Semyonov approval for this project, and he returned to the Transbaikal that summer. A short time later, he invited his friend Ungern to join him. It was around that time that the provisional government began to fall apart. The massive unpopularity of the war had been the impetus for the February Revolution in the first place, but the provisional government refused to even consider ending Russia's involvement in the conflict. On the contrary, they redoubled their military efforts. In the summer of 1917, plans were drawn up for a large-scale offensive on the Eastern Front. The mastermind of this operation, then-war minister Alexander Kerensky, reasoned that a great military victory would renew Russia's fighting spirit, and restore public confidence in the provisional government. The offensive was to take place in Galicia, where Russian forces would only have to contend with the Austro-Hungarians, whose forces were in an even greater state of disarray than their own. On the 1st of July, the Kerensky offensive was launched, and met with initial success. However, the Austro-Hungarians were soon reinforced with German soldiers, who provided more stiff resistance. The offensive stalled out, Russian casualties mounted, and the operation was called off before the end of the month. The Russians suffered 60,000 casualties, and had no strategic gain to show for it. Instead of bolstering people's faith in the provisional government and salvaging the army's morale, as was intended, the Kerensky offensive destroyed what little was left of the army's morale, 
and led directly to a series of violent demonstrations in Petrograd known as the July Days. These were protests incited by the Bolsheviks, a far-left party whose supporters argued that the February Revolution didn't go far enough and that political power should be transferred into the hands of the Soviets. A quick note, I do apologize for the gross oversimplification of the Russian revolutions, but this is an episode about Baron von Ungern Sternberg, after all. I promise that I do have plans to make a whole series of episodes about the Russian revolutions at a later date. Anyway, the Soviets were radical workers' councils, and they had a broad base of support among the working class, primarily urban workers and conscripted soldiers. The Soviet Council based in Petrograd became the de facto leader of the other Soviets, and it soon began to assert its authority by issuing orders that ran contrary to the provisional governments. One such order, Order Number 1 of the Petrograd Soviet, was directed at the army. Soldiers were instructed to form their own elected councils, and obey orders only so long as they did not interfere with the Soviets' directives. Ungern had to have viewed these developments with growing indignance. The monarchy he had fought all his life to uphold had been all but destroyed, and now left-wing radicals were chipping away at his personal authority, threatening to upend his beloved social hierarchy entirely. Events came to a head in November 1917, when the Bolsheviks overthrew the provisional government. Almost immediately, the officers of the Russian army began to organize resistance to the Bolsheviks, preparing to wage a civil war against them. The White Movement, as it was called, was an incongruous coalition. Its members held beliefs that spanned practically the entire political spectrum. Liberals and conservatives, monarchists and republicans, capitalists and even some socialists, united only by their opposition to the Bolsheviks. The Whites were also divided in another crucial aspect, by geography. The Bolsheviks' base of support was in the Russian heartland, while the White Army was able to organize resistance on the periphery, in South Russia along the Volga River, far to the east in Siberia, in the far northwest, and on the Baltic Sea coast. Communication and coordination between White Army leaders across these disparate theaters of war was nearly impossible, even within these fronts, the authority of the white leaders was not always unshakable. The ostensible leader of all anti-communist forces in Siberia was Admiral Alexander Kolchak, a former polar explorer turned army officer. While Kolchak was, on paper, the most powerful white leader in Siberia, and perhaps in all of Russia, his authority did not extend to the Ottomans, independent-minded Cossack military leaders such as Semyonov. While both fought against the Bolsheviks, the Cossacks differed from Kolchak in their respective visions of the nation's future, and as such, they had no interest in taking orders from him. All the while, Semyonov had been working on his ethnic recruitment scheme, with Ungern serving as his right-hand man. In March 1918, the Bolsheviks, as representatives of the Russian state, signed the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk with the Central Powers, ending Russia's involvement in the First World War. This did not change Semyonov and Ungern's plans much, However, this did not really change their plans all too much, as now they planned to use their newly raised Buryat regiments to fight against the Bolsheviks rather than the Germans. Unfortunately for them, the recruitment had been rather slow going. After nearly a year, Semyonov and Ungern had managed to recruit only around 600 or so soldiers. The rank-and-file soldiers stationed in the Transbaik Hall, meanwhile, had gone into revolt. Semyonov decided to move his base of operations a bit further away, he chose Manchuoli, a town on the Russian-Chinese border that was little more than a way station along the Trans-Siberian Railway. When Ungern and Semyonov arrived on the scene, they found a similar situation to the one they had just fled. 
The town's garrison was in revolt. The enlisted men were arranging ad hoc tribunals for their officers at that very moment. To make matters worse, thanks to a logistical mishap, most of Semyonov's men ended up on a train heading in the exact opposite direction from them. Ungern attempted to head west in an effort to catch up with them, but Semyonov made a last-minute change in plans. He now ordered Ungern to return to Manchuoli, with the train's railcars lit so as to appear that he was accompanied by a whole regiment of soldiers, and trick the mutinous garrison into surrendering. The plan worked without a hitch, and Ungern had the 500 soldiers disarmed and sent away. With the nascent insurrection put down, Semyonov and Ungern were able to use Manchuoli as a base from which they could reconquer the Transbaikal. From late 1917 to early 1918, Semyonov's men carried out several small-scale operations against the Red Army. Ungern was able to use the railcar bluff to disarm several more garrisons in the area, but it would not be enough. The Red Army was beginning to better organize their military efforts in the east, and eventually, Semyonov's forces were forced to flee across the border into China. In early 1918, they found themselves in Harbin, the primary urban center of Manchuria. Their objective was to find a third party that would be willing to support their reconquest of the Transbaikal. Ungern, anti-social as he was, did not meet with much success. Semyonov, on the other hand, was quite charismatic and, what's more, diplomatically savvy. He made contacts with agents working on behalf of the Japanese government. The Japanese wanted to take advantage of the Russian Civil War to expand their influence in Siberia. They were not willing to launch a full-scale invasion, or at least not yet. At the moment, they looked to place their backing behind a Russian warlord that might be amenable to their interests. While looking back on it, Semyonov might not have been the most trustworthy candidate for the task, he was able to convince the Japanese that he was their man. In Harbin, Semyonov reinforced his ranks with more Central Asian conscripts, Chinese mercenaries, and Japanese volunteers, all of whom were paid with Japanese funds and armed with Japanese weapons. Now christened the Special Manchurian Division, Semyonov's forces re-entered the Transbaikal in March of 1918. They suffered some initial setbacks, but their efforts were greatly helped along when the Allied powers, Japan included, made the decision to directly intervene in the Russian Civil War on behalf of the Whites. By September 1918, all Red Army forces had been driven out of the Transbaikal. Admiral Kolchak, who at this point now bore the title, supreme leader and commander-in-chief of all Russian land and sea forces, and yes, that was his real official title, formerly recognized Adaman Semyonov as commander-in-chief of the Transbaikal military district. Semyonov set up court in a high-end hotel in the regional capital of Chita, and from there he ruled the Transbaikal as if it were his own personal domain. Unbeknownst to either Kolchak or the Japanese, Semyonov's ambitions went far beyond just the Transbaikal, however. He had dreams of unifying all Mongol people into one centralized state, ruled by him, of course. Life for the average person living in Semyonov's Transbaikal was not pleasant. While most of the conflict in the Civil War was concentrated to the West, irregular Bolshevik forces waged, to use a contemporary term, a low-intensity war against the White Army wherever it could. In the Transbaikal, peasants and lower-class Cossacks, urged on by Bolshevik agents, took up arms against Semyonov's forces. As is often the case in these scenarios, to differentiate between combatant and civilian was a near-impossible task for the occupying force. Semyonov used these attacks by insurgents as a justification for inflicting a reign of terror on the population. Anyone suspected, justly or not, of Bolshevik allegiance was liable to be detained without trial, have their possessions stolen, or, more often than not, killed outright. 
Sometimes, pretext was disposed with altogether, and civilians would be robbed or killed at random. Semyonov and his underlings allowed this banditry to go on unchecked, as it simultaneously kept the soldiers complacent and the populace terrified. Even among white army officers, a group of people with a historical reputation for their cruelty, Ungern stands above the others as being more bloodthirsty and cruel than his contemporaries. Ungern had been granted control of the area surrounding the town of Doria, and, in keeping with Semyonov's recent behavior, Ungern treated the area under his jurisdiction as if it were his own personal fiefdom. Far and wide, people discussed in hushed tones stories of his cruelty, the graphic descriptions of which I will spare you from. He was known by a variety of epithets. The Black Baron, the Mad Baron, or simply just the Baron. Despite only being in his thirties, his men called him by a much more endearing nickname, Grandfather. To paraphrase an old aphorism, Ungern was both feared and loved. More often than not, the victims of his cruelty were his own underlings. Life as a soldier under Ungern's command was rough. Their days were spent constantly training. Despite his own history of insubordinate behavior, Ungern tolerated no such thing among his ranks. Beatings were administered to those found to be slacking off, sometimes by Ungern himself. Such a powerful aura of fear was built up around Ungern that a single glare from him could reduce a man to tears. Nevertheless, he was beloved by his men for a few reasons. For one, his stance on war crimes was much the same as Semyonov's. He allowed his men to kill, rape, and loot as they pleased. Secondly, he largely rejected the privileges that his noble status would normally allow him to enjoy. Rather than lording over his soldiers like a, well, a baron, he lived among them. His headquarters was described as a, quote, dirty old slaughterhouse, unquote. He shunned bureaucracy, and he did not use his position for personal enrichment as other warlords did. Rather, he ensured that the spoils of war went to the upkeep of his army. A final factor, which will become much more important later on, was his embrace of the local culture. A decent contingent of the men under his command were of Central Asian ancestry. At this time, Ungern even took on an Asian wife, the daughter of a local Chinese grandee. Not much is known about her, and not even her original name has been passed down in the historical record. When she and Ungern were married on August 16, 1919, she took on the Russian name Elena Pavlovna. It can be surmised that the marriage was strictly political and it may not have even been consummated. Ungern was simply uninterested in such things, and not a single mention of her can be found in his existing writings. A rift was growing between Semyonov and Ungern. Ungern's Spartan, soldierly lifestyle stood in sharp contrast to the decadent court of Ataman Semyonov. Between foreign aid and war loot, Semyonov had become immensely wealthy, and his capital city of Chita reflected this. It is described as being, quote, a whirlpool of pleasures, from theater to champagne dinners to extravagant balls. The nightlife was notorious. Cocaine-addicted Russian whores, officers pimping out their wives, exotic oriental hostesses imported from across the Manchurian border. Semyonov's own appetite for women was insatiable, and he kept at least a dozen or so mistresses. He maintained a private railway car devoted entirely to his harem, end quote. Funds intended for military expenditures were secretly shipped off to Chinese banks, and Semyonov always kept a getaway vehicle on standby in case he needed to evade capture at a moment's notice. Ungern began to suspect that his superior was not quite as dedicated to the white cause as he was. A letter of Ungern's from September 1918 reads in part, quote, 
I lost faith on my last trip to Cheetah. It is a shame to admit it, but be assured that when we last talked, I did not think this would be an uphill battle. Now it is time to change colors. The passivity and apathy of some people have ruined everything. End quote. It wasn't just Ungern's disgust of Semyonov's decadent lifestyle that drove the two apart, but political differences between the two were coming to the fore. Both men were monarchists, to be sure, but Semyonov advocated for a more democratic constitutional monarchy, while Ungern remained an absolutist monarchist to the very end. Ungern also criticized Semyonov for his treatment of Jews, which is to say that he felt Semyonov's treatment of the Jews was far too lenient. Ungern's personal religious beliefs, as discussed prior, were a bit unconventional to say the very least. He identified himself first and foremost as a Christian, but he was tolerant of most other faiths, and was even willing to entertain ideas from some of them. The exception to that was Judaism. Russian society in the 19th and 20th centuries has a fairly well-deserved reputation for its anti-Semitism. Jewish civil and political rights were severely limited. And, since the late 1800s, Jewish communities had been targeted by pogroms, violent riots wherein hundreds of Jewish people were murdered at a time. When the fabric of Russian society was torn asunder by war and revolution in 1917, people looked for a group of people to blame, and many Russians, societally predisposed to hate and fear Jews, predictably blamed the Jews. As these allegations had no basis in reality, a cottage industry emerged to forge allegedly first-hand documents that proved that the Jews were engaged in some far-reaching conspiracy to instigate revolution as part of a larger plot to destroy Russia and Christendom as a whole. Or something to that effect, the specifics vary. Many officers of the White Army bought into this conspiracy. Some went so far as to aid in the reproduction and distribution of said anti-Semitic literature. This literature made its way through the circles of the White Army's officer corps, so it is very likely that Ungern came into contact with at least some of it. Ungern's anti-Semitic views were also likely influenced by his theosophical beliefs. Theosophic authors often wrote apocalyptic narratives involving a hidden enemy, which seeks to turn the rulers of the world against each other to their own ends. Many authors, including Helena Blavatsky herself, denied that they were meant to symbolize Jews, but many, including Ungern himself, chose to interpret it as such. A quote of Ungern's from Beasts, Men, and Gods. In the Buddhistic and Christian traditions, we read stern predictions about the time when war between the good and evil spirits must begin. Then, there must be the unknown curse, which will conquer the world, blot out culture, kill morality, and destroy the people. Its weapon is revolution. Revolution is an infectious disease, and Europe, making the treaty with Moscow, deceived itself and all the world. The Great Spirit, master of our lives, Karma, knows neither anger nor pardon. He will reckon the account whose total will be famine, destruction, the death of culture, of glory, of honor, and of spirit, the death of states and of peoples. I already see this horror, this dark, mad destruction of humanity." End quote. In other words, Ungern had come to believe that Russia was all but lost to the malevolent forces of the revolution, and that the Jews were to blame. But there was hope yet, as the nation's salvation lied in the people of the East. Ungern was right about one thing, Russia was indeed lost to the revolutionaries. By the spring of 1920, the White Army was being beaten back across all major theaters of the war. In Siberia, more and more partisans took up arms against the Whites, 
and they grew more emboldened by the day. They were able to seize and hold entire settlements for days at a time before white forces were able to retake them. The brutal reprisals of Semyonov's men drove even more people to take up arms against them. Even some white soldiers defected and joined the partisans. This vicious cycle continued to the point that, by the end of 1919, sources report that there were more than 100,000 partisans operating out of Siberia. White forces were in disarray, scrambling to stamp out the resistance. Taking advantage of this, regular Red Army forces launched an offensive into Siberia in October 1919. Within a month, they had captured the seat of Supreme Leader Kolchak's government at Omsk. Kolchak was forced to retreat eastward to the city of Irkutsk, but before he could arrive, the city was taken over by members of a leftist political faction. Kolchak walked right into their trap. He was handed over to the Bolshevik authorities and, after a brief show trial, Alexander Kolchak was executed by firing squad on the 7th of February, 1920. Before he died, he formally resigned from all his offices, both military and political. He attempted to pass on the title of supreme leader to General Anton Denikin, who refused it, and he relinquished command of all remaining white forces in Siberia to the highest-ranking white officer in the region, Atman Gregory Semyonov. Even if Kolchak had given his position to somebody more dedicated and or competent, the white forces at this point could not have hoped to stop the advance of the Red Army. In the south of Russia, Baron Pyotr Wrangel was defeated and forced to flee the country in November 1919. By the summer of 1920, Red Army forces had penetrated far into the Transbaikal. On the 10th of July, Soviet and Japanese forces agreed to a temporary ceasefire. Days later, the two signed an agreement wherein the Japanese promised to withdraw from Russia entirely. Semyonov had lost nearly all of his allies, and with the full brunt of the Red Army coming down to bear on him, it was only a matter of time before Chita fell. The military situation had become so desperate that even Ungern had decided it was time to leave. But by time to leave, I don't mean quietly follow Semyonov into exile. No, this would be something different. Ungern was about to embark on the fatal campaign for which history would remember him. The Mongolian campaign. Anyway, that's where I'll leave things for now. Tune in next time to see Ungern return to Mongolia, as he takes over the country and reaches the zenith of his power. If you like the show, please consider leaving a favorable review on iTunes, or sharing it with your friends and followers on social media. This is how we get the show to get more listeners. If you have questions, comments, concerns, inquiries, etc., please email the show at historiadramaticapod at gmail.com, or address them to me via my Twitter, at KaiserWillemII. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you again in two weeks' time. Until then, this is Willem Connor signing off.